Hello everyone and welcome back. It's a pleasure to meet again. I took the liberty to ask ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence, a few things for this episode, and I'm gonna quote them for you. First, I asked if it knew what an episiotomy was, and it answered, an episiotomy is a surgical cut made in the perineum, which is the area between the vagina and the anus during childbirth. The procedure is typically done to widen the vaginal opening and make it easier for the baby to pass through. Episiotomies used to be a routine part of childbirth, but in recent years, their use has declined significantly. This is because studies have shown that routine episiotomies do not provide any benefits to mothers or babies, and can in fact cause harm. When an episiotomy is deemed necessary, it is usually performed with local anesthesia and the cut is made just before the baby is delivered. The incision may be midline or at an angle, depending on the specific circumstances of the delivery. After the baby is born, the cut is stitched up using dissolvable sutures. Episiotomies are now typically only performed in certain situations, such as when the baby is in distress and needs to be delivered quickly or when the mother's perineum is too small or inflexible for the baby to pass through. Obstetricians and midwives can discuss with the patient whether an episiotomy is likely to be necessary in the specific case, and what the options are for pain relief and postpartum care. I really like this answer and I wish reality was as it described. However, it's not always the case. In this episode, I will be largely referencing the work of Anne King, titled Women are being cut during childbirth without need or consent, who beautifully described the context in the US for episiotomy. However, although the references for this episode are mostly North American, there is a general consensus among all European sources that I've visited that the issue is spread across all Western countries and maybe even far beyond. Before I continue with the discussion, I would like to make a sort of a disclaimer. I have no intention whatsoever to discourage anyone to be a mother. Motherhood is a miracle and something sacred that should be cherished and protected. I just want to spread awareness for anyone to be a little bit more informed about what's going on in the world, because I believe knowledge is power. It is important for women and their partners to be informed about their options when it comes to childbirth and to have open and honest conversations with their healthcare providers. Every woman's situation is unique, and what's right for one may not be right for another. Now that this is clear, let's dive right in. Once episiotomies were widely used, in the 1970s, 61% of the US women would have had an episiotomy. In the UK, the rates in the 90s were still above 45% and in Sweden, around 30%. Please check the caption for the reference of these numbers. Today, the overall rate of episiotomies in the US is around 12%. However, there are still recorded cases of hospitals with rates above 40% of all deliveries. When the World Health Organization says physicians should aim to perform episiotomies in about 10% of births, as Anking explains, this cut can be extremely painful and hard to recover from, and can increase the risk of a severe tear, either during labor or a later birth. They've also been linked with loss of bladder or bowel control. 
sexual dysfunction, and other serious injuries. So why do some hospitals still have high rates? Experts say that some doctors still regularly use procedures for a variety of reasons. Habit, convenience, lack of accountability, or, acceptably, when needed in an emergency. And the New York City News Service found that it's common for the cut to happen without the mother's consent. Still quoting Anking's paper, it is pointed out that several women who have had an episiotomy have stories that sound very similar, such as Tara Dolly that said, I wasn't asked if I wanted an episiotomy. They just took out the scissors and did it. She had an epidural, which is a medical procedure in which medication is injected into the space around the spinal cord to relieve pain. So she couldn't really feel much from the waist down and said that she didn't know about the procedure until afterwards. Many women in these uncomfortable situations blame themselves for not speaking up, not knowing how to or even if it's necessary, since in the end the babies are healthy. This paper mentions that hospitals with huge rates of cutting work with several doctors who were educated in the 70s and in the 80s, a time where routine episiotomy was championed in schools which could in some ways explain the occurrence. According to Dr. Neil Saha, an assistant professor of obstetric and gynecology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Delivery Decision Initiative at Harvard's Adriatna Labs, the dominant cause of suffering in the world right now is not lack of knowledge. It's lack of execution of the knowledge that we have. Since there's a huge gap between what we know and what we do, throughout all of healthcare. He says, this is a practice that is objectively awful and you do not want to do this to someone, especially who doesn't need it by 2018 standards. In spite of that, it is still subject of the same slow diffusion of knowledge and guidelines as the rest of the medical industry. Yet in my eyes, this is not an excuse and doctors should update their practices since currently there are only a few allowed reasons to practice this cut. The only surefire reason, according to expert, is if the baby's head is very low and it is already about to come out, but needs to be out immediately because the fetal heart rate is dropping or they're showing other signs of emergency. However, as we have already briefly mentioned, there are several reasons why doctors might still use episiotomy regularly. They've always done them, they lack awareness of best practices, or they want to speed up the deliveries. This is extremely problematic when it puts the mother in distress, such as Christine Hortis, who gave the testimony of feeling no longer like a human being in the room, but just a presence there, however they wanted her to be to deliver the baby. Working under the assumption that an episiotomy would speed up birth is also incorrect, since according to the president of Oregon ACMN chapter, an episiotomy only speeds up the delivery if the baby is already extremely close to coming out, or crowning, as it is said in technical terms. However, there are testimonies of women who underwent cutting uselessly, because they testimonied getting cut just because labor wasn't proceeding fast enough. As experts say, while it can be faster to stitch up a clean cut, it isn't necessarily easier to heal it from. 
an episiotomy is roughly the equivalent of a second-degree tear, in that the cut goes through both skin and muscle, but an even cut can be deeper than an irregular natural tear. Performing an episiotomy means a higher probability of causing more postpartum pain and discomfort. Laura Fry, a mom from Lanchester, Pennsylvania, and founder of the Severe Tear Support Group on Facebook, said that she had a fourth-degree tear as a result of her episiotomy. A fourth-degree tear is when the perineum tears all the way, the worst possible outcome from an episiotomy. Fry had to leave her job as a nurse due to complications. It took her about nine months to heal, during which she had pain during bowel movements and sex, uncontrolled gas, and couldn't move around or walk much. How do we know that this is due to episiotomies and not just women's physicality? Well, some skepticals could say that it is impossible to distinguish, but there are plenty of women who, after their second child, and a completely different labor and delivery treatment did not have recurring discomfort. By now it is clear how bad for the physical well-being of a person this procedure may be, but it can also be extremely traumatic. One of the many examples in the paper is one of a mother who has to remain anonymous, who says that she was repeatedly pressured to have an episiotomy by her doctor while giving birth at White Plains Hospital in New York in 2016, quoting he kept saying, I just need to make a small cut and this baby will come right out. And I kept saying no over and over. And it's hard to say no to anything while you're pushing. For reference, White Plains Hospital in 2016 had a 65.2% episiotomy rate, the highest in New York. Allow me to bring another example of testimony from the paper. Mrs. Lee Han Ferrara. She was cut during both her births at the White Plains Hospital in 2014 and 2017. She says that even though she had a midwife, the world episiotomy was never once used. She says that the provider took out the trays of scissors and it was almost like she was hiding it, like Lee Han wasn't supposed to see it. And she was confused as why it wasn't cleared with her. And then it was already happening, she said. Ferrara blames herself for not speaking up. Still, she doesn't dwell on it because all turned out okay in the end. Both her children are healthy, and her healing process was uneventful. Quoting, I don't know if I needed one or not. If I'd been asked, I don't think I would have thought twice about it. At this point of the conversation, Anking's paper moves to talk about getting consent before the procedure but I wouldn't spend too much time on the subject because I believe that anyone with common sense can have at least an intuition on why it should be necessary to get a person's consent before performing any type of procedure, including an episiotomy. I would like to bring out the attention to another point, the story of Kimberly Turbin, who sued her doctor and won for assault and battery after he performed an episiotomy on her in 2013. It is famous since she provided video evidence of her begging the doctor not to cut her. The video will be linked in the description, but please viewer discretion advised, since it is very graphic and potentially emotional, and it is an age-restricted video on the YouTube platform. About the Turbin story, I thought I would like to bring attention to another factor, on how Mrs. Turbin had to go through multiple lawyers before finding someone who would agree on representing her 
since it might be hard to prove actual harm if the baby came out okay. This last sentence is quoted directly from Lucero, someone who's familiar with Kimberly's case. This last very quote personally upsets me, because it completely disregards a woman's experience, and I do not understand how this is acceptable. As Anking explains, there is a lot of misconception and misinformation surrounding consent and childbirth. Experts and advocates say it is partially because of the dynamics that exist between the women and the doctors attending their births. That the doctor is the expert and the mother should listen and be happy as long as the baby is okay. However, we sometimes forget that women have goals in labor besides emerging unscathed. Survival is the floor, but what women deserve is the ceiling which is not just safety, but also support and empowerment. You can't just do things to them, especially if it involves sharp objects. I feel like this is an underlying problem in our society. The over-categorization and objectification for personal purposes. As in the just presented cases, women are seen as baby machines, for lack of better words. And if there has to be a category, I think it should not be the only one that they are put in within the same time frame. Now, where I'm trying to drag the conversation to is, as a consequence of episiotomies or natural tearing, it becomes necessary the stitching up of said wound. What I'm nuancing to in the title of this episode is the husband stitch. The husband stitch, quoting the healthline, is an extra stitch given during the repair process of a vaginal birth, supposedly to tighten the vagina for increased pleasure of a male sexual partner. But is it just an urban legend? Unfortunately, it is very real. Although there aren't yet any scientific studies that prove its frequency, there are plenty of testimonies of women warning with their stories. The fact that there even is a practice called a husband stitch, is a perfect example of the intersection of the objectification of women's body and healthcare. Some people may be asking themselves now, how is this bad? Well, according to OBGYNs, regardless of whether the tear happens on its own or as a result of an episiotomy, it's not even possible to make a vagina tighter with stitching. A husband stitch would not affect the overall vaginal tone, as it has much more to do with pelvic floor strength and integrity than with the opening size. Therefore, the husband stitch doesn't have any benefits to whom was intended, but only side effects for the receiver. In fact, here's a list of adverse side effects to this mutilation, according to Medicinet. Unable to walk for a longer period of time after giving birth, Standing up upright causes discomfort and pain. Sex becomes painful to both partners, especially women, who may experience more pain, resulting in fear and avoidance of sex. Swelling and chronic pain in the vaginal opening. The scar tissue may tear. They may have persistent infections, emotional distress, incontinence, damage to nerve endings that result in loss of sensation in the area, and lastly, disfigurement. This vaginal tucking is not medically approved and is not an acceptable medical procedure. Hence, conducting it is considered malpractice. 
and all doctors and other healthcare workers can be sued for performing this surgery. To a certain extent, this practice could be compared to mutilation that is prohibited in all European countries. Since this episode is already getting longer, and I am sure you found it as content-dense as I do, I'm going to stop here for now. There is still so much more that I would like to address, such as other type of OB abuse for women to look out for, and what the partner in the situation can and should do, whether the context is abusive or not. I believe that these will be both pretty dense topics that deserve their own episode. Now allow me to give credit one last time where it is due. Most of the content about episiotomies in this episode has been directly taken from Anking's work, and I would like to thank her for the precious contribution that she gave to the discussion and how beautifully worded her paper is. Please, for a more detailed view about the original work, see the podcast description for the paper's link. That is all for now. But please, if you learned something from this episode, subscribe to the podcast and to its social media accounts. Share the episode as much as you can, but most importantly, keep the conversation going. Thank you so, so much for joining me today and see you super soon. Bye.